From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 42. We're going to deviate from our normal guest model today, and instead we're going to rock a Q&A. we got really good uh, questions from some of our listeners um, on an Instagram poll recently, so we're going to dive into the reader mailbag just a little bit as we attack a few subjects from skill development and strength conditioning. Dakota Herman's here to help out with today, so we're in for a real treat. If you want to develop faster and train better, you need the best gear. And with that said, we've got some really exciting news for you. The number one baseball brand in the world, Rawlings, has partnered with us at Cressy Sports Performance to make getting the best training gear for you more affordable. Simply head to Rawlings.com and use the coupon code Cressy20, that's C-R-E-S-S-E-Y 20 at checkout, and you'll save 20% off your order. This offer is only valid on select items, but there's a ton of great gear you'll save 20% on that will help you become a better player. So shop now. Again, that's Rawlings.com, R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com, and enter the coupon code CRESSY20, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y 20 at checkout, and you'll get 20% off on your order of some absolutely awesome baseball gear that we use every day with our pro guys. Welcome back, everybody. As you know, we did not do a bio for today's guest because it is a Q&A that we're doing in-house, but I do think it's important that we introduce you all to the man behind the scenes, um, the legend Dakota Herman, who helps out with our podcast. What's up, Dakota? What's up, you guys? Thanks for having me on, Eric. Uh, you, you've been on every episode. Folks just haven't heard you, so I'm going to sing Dakota's praises. He's been a rock star behind the scenes for making sure this podcast uh, rolls smoothly, and he makes me look way smarter than I am every week, so I appreciate all your hard work, bud. Um, yeah, no worries. It feels weird being on the opposite end of this and actually talking on the yeah, phone instead of just listening to people. <laughs> absolutely. Dakota has been an active, uh, you know, participant at our Massachusetts facility on the, both the throwing um, and the coaching side of things with respect to strength conditioning. So he's kind of my uh, my Swiss Army knife. Um, but in that same vein, before we get going with with some of the questions, I did want to give folks a heads up that we just announced registration for the 2020 CSB Collegiate Elite Baseball Development Program. Um, it's an event that takes place at our Hudson, Massachusetts facility and runs from. June 1st through August 8th. Um, it's the fourth year we've run the program, and each year we've had pitchers that have moved to Massachusetts from all around the country. Um, we expect a really good turnout of, of really motivated athletes who are going to push themselves and those around them um, to get better. And, and a lot of the same training opportunities and expertise that we provide to our pro crowd. Um, to give you a little backstory for what this is, it's a great fit for pitchers who really need to prioritize development as opposed to just getting innings or exposure. Um, so it's a, it's a great replacement for those who still need to throw, but may need to put on 20 pounds, learn a new pitch, you know, sort out aches and pains, improve their mobility, whatever it may be. So it's a, it's a good contrast to what we see with traditional summer ball experiences. And we've had some really good results over the years, and we fine-tuned the program and made it uh, better each year. Um, each athlete begins with a thorough initial movement and pitching assessment that sets the stage for our individualized programming on both the throwing and strength and conditioning side of things. Um, the programs correspond to six days a week of training. Generally, four of those six days are double sessions with uh, throwing in the morning and strength conditioning in the afternoons. 
Um, and really, you know, in our throwing programs, we're going to integrate weighted ball stuff. We're going to use long toss. We're going to use obviously bullpens with video analysis. We do detailed pitching analytics breakdowns ranging from spin rates, spin efficiency, spin axes, um, and high speed camera stuff in these bullpens as well. Um, we'll have opportunities for our pitchers to throw live to hitters. And we even placed some guys in the Cape Cod baseball league late in the summer last year after they, they took big jumps forward. And some of those rosters had a need for participants. Um, every one of our athletes gets a weekly manual therapy session with our licensed massage therapist or physical therapist. Um, and we do nutritional guidance throughout the program. So to help with recovery, guys have access to Mark Pro, Normatec, and red light therapy. And, and last but not least, but I think actually really differentiates this heavily, um, compared to maybe some of the offerings in this vein that you'll see around the country. We incorporate a regular educational component to educate athletes on the why behind their training. Um, you know, this isn't just staff presentations, but more importantly, it's, it's conference calls and meetings with major league players and established coaches from around the country. So, you know, we've had Noah Syndergaard, uh, Alan Jager, Kurt Schilling, Oliver Drake, Steve Ciszek, um over the years who have all contributed really good stuff and done Q&A with the guys. Um, and, you know, above all else, it takes place in a really motivating environment where you know, athletes can push each other to be the best they can be and, you know, really surround themselves by people who are like-minded. Um, so if you're interested in learning more, you can uh, shoot an email to cspmass at gmail.com. Again, that's cspmass at gmail.com. Um, we do cap the headcount, and these do sell out every year, so you want to get on the radar screen earlier um, than later. So uh, the last thing I would say is if you're interested in learning a little bit more about how it's structured, definitely check out Kyle Driscoll on episode 27. After last year's program, he went through um, some of the key findings and observations that he had um, with a lot of the pitchers that came in and, and you know talked about commonalities of success with guys who had really good outcomes there. So um, definitely check it out if you're interested. Um, you can also you know reach out if you have more questions. So Dakota, you've been involved in it. Anything I missed? It's pretty much the most and most all inclusive program you'll be able to find for ten weeks and. Really, the culture that uh, Kyle and John and all the other staff members are able to bring to the table is really, is really what I think se separates it. And I don't think you miss anything as far as the details of it. Just the culture that's able to be built there is really remarkable. And you're missing out if you just stay at home and train at a gym and and don't come. I love it. All right, man. So that wraps up our infomercial. Uh, let's yeah. let's let's get to the questions. And I think this is something we're going to make our, a regular feature because we did actually get some some good questions when I posted this on my Instagram story and asked for some some inquiries. So. Let's hit it, man. Yeah, first one out of the pot. Um, how would you model a seven-day rotation schedule for a college pitcher? I love this one because it allows us to touch on a, a lot of different concepts. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I would say is if you appreciate what the biggest change for a college pitcher that moves on to a pro rotation Really what they talk about is that you get used to pitching at 90%. On a five-day rotation, it is just a constant race to recover. The difference, though, is on a seven-day rotation, you actually have a ton of time to get in high-quality work. So if you structure your week correctly, you can be really, really productive. And to be honest, I think this is actually one of the reasons why you see so many Japanese pitchers get hurt when they come to the United States is that there's a very predictable rotation. They have the same off day every week, and guys are on you know six- to seven-day rotations over there. Coming to a five-day rotation, it, it presents a lot of challenges where you'll see organizations try you know shorter starts every fifth day, or they'll try picking backing guys they'll try guys on six day rotations to adjust them but in the in the college seven day rotation we can do some awesome stuff so when i look at these programs um, my goal is always to follow a high low model so um you know this is originally kind of proposed by charlie francis in the sprint community and 
Um, there's some great research out there, or really more more kind of layman's literature write-ups about it where you can learn more if you're interested in digging low. But for all intents and purposes, if you look at a high-low model, um, you need to make sure that you, you have periods of high stress where you overload the system and try to create a compensatory adaptation. And then you also have periods where you back off and give people a chance to regenerate and presumably come back at a, a higher level of, of fitness or, you know, motor learning proficiency. So, um, you know, day zero. So let's, let's say we're talking about a Friday night starter in the college game. That would be day zero. Okay. So obviously you're going to pitch. What I actually really like to do is that's a, that's a high stress day. Um, you're going out there and throwing 110 pitches or whatever it is. I actually like to have guys do some sprint slash agility stuff after the game. Um, they're already warmed up. You don't have to do a, a pronounced warm up. Um, and they can usually kind of go right to it. So, you know, if it's running some, some short starts and some sixties, um, it's a way to consolidate stress on that day zero. Um, and it's a different kind of stress than pitching, right? You're gonna have a fatigued cuff, scapular stabilizer, all that. Whereas no one ever really complains that they, you know, they can't go out and sprint. And you've, you've seen plenty of guys in spring training in professional baseball who will make a start and then go out and, you know, run three miles on the backfields or something like that. I'd rather get a really CNS intensive effort from the lower body in sprint work. And you'll understand why as we kind of lay out the entire rest of this. What I would also tell you is if you have a, a piece of paper in front of you, this is going to make so much more sense. So write down with me uh, as we go through this. So on day zero, you're going to pitch and then sprint. So that would be uh, Friday, you know, if it's a Friday night starter. So day one, the day after, um, from a throwing standpoint, you know, some guys like to play catch the next day, get their arm moving. Other guys like to take it off altogether. I feel like it's a very individual thing. Um, so, you know, that regardless is going to be a low stress day from a pitching standpoint. And what I like to do is I like to pair it up with um, some mobility circuits. So the, the goal is if day zero is really, really crazy, day one is going to be a back off day where we're going to have a good recharge. This is something we've done in the past. Mike Soroka is one of our pro guys who likes to lift right after his start on a five-day rotation so he can have kind of a low-key day one. Corey Kluber's lifted after his day zero start in the past as well. So the goal is use day one to feel as good as you possibly can. What do I like to do on that? Mobility circuits, um, some light aerobic base work can, can be great. I'm not a big fan of distance running, um, but this may be a day where a guy wants to, to get on the bike a little bit or elliptical, just move around. I know guys that like to get in the pool and do some easy, um, you know, kind of underwater running or, you know, kind of swimming. Basically, the, the intensity should be really, really low and you should leave the sessions on this day one feeling refreshed. Um, this is also a crucial day for me, particularly with stiffer athletes, where we want to take that next day and use it as an opportunity to, to regain lost range of motion. So if you're a guy who, you know, loses shoulder flexion and elbow extension, this is the day to get in and, you know, see your athletic trainer, see a massage therapist or a PT, someone who can put their hands on you and, and really help to restore that range of motion and help you bounce back. So when you have that that low after your high on day zero, it sets you up for, for day two being a really good workload day. So what we look at on day two is that's a day to stretch out your long toss a little bit more. You know, you know, some guys like to go to 120, some guys like to go to 270. It's a very individual thing depending on how you're feeling. So I like the, uh, the Alan Jager mindset of kind of like taking your arm for a walk and seeing how it feels on a given day. And then after you've done your throwing for the day, get in a good lower body lift. So we're going to have a really stressful day two. Um, so we're going to get after it. This is your, your big workload day in the, in the weight room. Um, and, you know, it kind of starts this block. So what I look at is I look at day two and day three as a combined high block. So um, in the context of a, a seven-day rotation with a guy who throws on a Friday night, that's going to be Sunday into Monday, right? So you're going to long toss and lower body on, on Sunday. On Monday – 
you're going to push your long toss and your weighted ball stuff a lot harder um, if you're a weighted ball guy. Um, and then you're going to get in like a, an upper body lift. So we go back to back lifting. And the idea really simply there is, you know, we're setting the stage for a, a low key day four. So that's our second low in this seven, you know cycle. So if you're a Friday starter, um, basically push it hard on Sunday and Monday. So Tuesday is going to be a little bit more mellow. Um, you know, play catch if you want to take it off if you feel like you need the day. And then that's a day where I like to, to do what we call micro dosing of our sprint work. So it's a lot of short sprints, change of directions, not a lot of long distance stuff, almost like a little bit of like a, a neural charge workout where you're just priming somebody, but then, you know, pulling back on the reins in terms of how much they, they actually do. So on that day, it might be the kind of thing where you do some skipping, some side shuffling, some karaoke, stuff like that. And then run six to eight 15 yard accelerations, you know, where you're just doing some starts. Um, and then they go and they play catch right afterwards. And, and that's the day. Um, and so that's our low day. And then on day five, we do another kind of borderline high day. I'd call it like a moderate slash high, um, where they would throw their bullpen. Um, I like that because it, it puts you 48 hours out from your start. So it kind of shortens the learning loop. Um, and you get a full body lift in what I try to do in that training session is be a little bit more concentric in nature. So that means we pick exercises that aren't going to necessarily have a high propensity to making athletes soar. So maybe we push the sled, um, you know, we do some deadlifts for speed. Maybe we, you know, do a little bit of med ball stuff. We might do some Turkish get-ups, but the last thing we're going to do there is do like, you know, tons of pull-ups and dumbbell benches and things like that. It's more about getting athletes moving. Um, and, you know, creating a little bit of a stimulus to, to keep them going. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like a moderately high, but not the, the most crazy high you can imagine. Day six, you know, which would be the day before your start, individual preference. Some guys like to do nothing. Some guys like to just play catch. I know guys in pro ball who like to do some, you know, quick short sprints, just move it around. And then obviously day seven is pitch again. So if you look at how it's all structured, day zero is high. Day one is low. Day two slash three are high. Um, day four is low. Day five is moderately high. Day six is low. And then you're back at it, hopefully feeling good to, to go out and dominate on day seven. So, um, again, that looks a lot prettier if you write it all out and plan it out yourself. And obviously there's exercise selection components, but hopefully that all made sense. No, that's awesome. And I think, too, that especially for college pitchers, most of the people that are going to be asking this question are guys just looking to do more. Mm-hmm. I think just for just young athletes understanding what a high-low model really does. It's going to help people because I, you always hear like guys wanting to do as much as they can in between their starts to feel better and feel prepared. And sometimes it's uh, understanding less is more and you just need to check all these boxes and it's really nice to have a layout for them. And I would also even add like, don't wait to feel crappy before you deload. So what I'll do with guys is, you know, if you're big weighted balls guys and you're, you're pushing it hard on day three, um, you know, that might be a day where we pull back on weighted balls. You know, every fourth week we just bang it. And maybe instead of taking it out to 300 in your long toss, you go out and just, you know, you play catch to 180 on the line. Maybe you pair back on the number of pull down throws on the way back in. Maybe you, you know, you shorten up the flat ground you throw before you get off your mound. Like there's, there's a million different ways you can fluctuate training stress, you know, drop, you know, the amount of volume you do in the weight room by, you know, 40%. Um, you know, what I also look at is like, how do you deload, right? If you're a really experienced athlete, like when I deload, like I, I take weight off the bar, like I'll, I'll actually keep volume up, but drop intensity. 
Um, and I'm a little bit older and I've been lifting heavy stuff long enough that I feel like my joints are the things that probably need to break the most. <laughs> Whereas if you have a, you know, a, an 18 year old kid who walked into college who had no training experience, you know, his deload might just be like, Hey, let's reduce the, the total number of sets and reps, but let's keep the intensity high. Let's, let's push the load because you can still continue to gain strength and, and all that. But, you know, as you work through this stuff, it's, it's, you know, it, it for some guys, it'll be less volume, but I, I would actually argue for a lot of guys, it's, it's more than they thought they could do. So the biggest thing I'll tell you is make sure you're monitoring body weight, like check to see if, if, you know, you're keeping your weight up sufficiently or if it's, you know, more workload than you've ever gotten. But, you know, that's basically kind of like two and a half to three lifts per week, um, as well as two sprint sessions. And you also have to keep in mind that you're, you're effectively doing a little bit of light sprint work during every warm up before every catch play session. Um, and then the other thing we didn't even really talk about is where do you put your arm care on those days? So, you know, we'll, we'll put in more of our heavy manual stuff, um, on the upper body day, we'll do more rhythmic stabilizations, 90, 90 holds, you know, on some of our, you know, like our full body day and our lower body days. And then, you know, on a daily basis, you can hit some rhythmic stabilizations. You can do some low level motor control stuff. So over the course of the week, you, you hit your total. But what I very rarely do is say, all right, we're going to do 45 minutes of arm care on these two days. Um, it's all worked into what we're trying to see. No, that's awesome. And I think, yeah, like you were saying, I mean, just like you can pick and choose and and really just tweak your schedule to really achieve the goal that you need. And that's to feel the best you can every seven days. So, I mean, you said arm care, sprints, like changing, changing all this stuff is going to really be helpful. And if guys just follow this, they can really find a, a seven day routine for them. So that's awesome. Um, I like it. The next question we got is actually from a, uh, Elite Baseball Development Program attendee himself. Uh, shout out to Drake Gongwer for sending this one in. Good man. Um, Gr- great fisherman. Impressive great fisherman. Fish. Brought his boat to, to Massachusetts. Great actually. fishing, fishing <laughs> resume and a good splitter too. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, the question is, are there any risks or specific considerations for using blood flow restriction bands while lifting as a pitcher? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, this is, I think, maybe the best question I've gotten, and this is the perfect medium in which to – um, kind of describe it. So here, here's what I'll tell you is nerves don't like to be compressed and they don't like to be stretched. Um, so what we realize is if you talk about nerves in the upper extremity, right, they all originate on your brachial plexus, which runs from C5 to T1 on your neck. Um, so after those come off your nerve roots, they run right past your, your scalings, right? So if you look at thoracic outlet surgery, usually they do what's called a sta- scalenectomy, um, so they'll remove uh, some of those tissues to allow things to glide a little freer. After they go past your scalings, they, they shoot inferiorly. They go underneath your clavicle and above your first rib. You've also got a small muscle called your subclavius that bunches things up. So there's a really small area for them to pass through. Then they shoot a little bit more laterally. They go underneath your pec minor, the short of your biceps and your coracobrachialis as those attach on the front of your scapula on something called your coracoid process. Then all those nerves go into the front of your shoulder, um, basically where they can mechanically be impinged, you know, on your subscap. They can, you know, basically get banged up if your rotator cuff control isn't good and your humeral head kind of jumps forward and beats up, um, you know, on those nerves as they pass through the front of your shoulder. And then they shoot in a lot of different places, right? So your, your ulnar nerve obviously goes more posteriorly past your triceps as it runs down onto the inside of your elbow. Your muscular cutaneous nerve goes to your biceps. There's, so they shoot all over the place. And what we realize is there's a lot of places 
you don't need to remember that anatomy, but you have to realize there's a lot of places where nerves can be compressed, whether that's because of faulty movement patterns, whether it's because of acquired tissue density or muscle bulk. Um, so we have to be really, really cognizant of not creating a scenario where those tissue, those nerves are more compressed. And what we see though, unfortunately, is in the, in the throwing motion, nerves are violently stretched. As you lay your arm back and manipulate the baseball and go through rapid elbow flexion to extension, there are a lot of nerves that are, that are tensioned from your neck all the way down to your fingertips. So one of the things that can be challenging is they're, they're often beaten up by the nature of throwing. And that's why we see so many distal nerve problems, um, you know, particularly if you have scenarios where, you know, if your UCL is insufficient, your ulnar nerve is much more exposed. If you have, you know, a flexor tendon neuropathy where the tissue is really fibrotic and nasty, your flexor carpi ulnaris is where your ulnar nerve actually penetrates in the form. So that can be a mechanical model. So there's a lot of places where things can get snagged. Um, and the throwing motion puts a lot of those nerves in really challenging places. Um, so this is one of the reasons why I think you have to tread really, really lightly when you integrate uh, blood flow restriction training in the upper extremity. We know a lot of pitchers, if you look at every case of thoracic outlet, usually what happens is they go and they throw, the adrenaline wears off and they wake up, you know, maybe in the middle of the night or just an hour after their outing and their arm is swollen and purple with a blood clot. So it happens after the fact when that residual swelling is in place. So um, you have to be very careful from both a nerve and a vascular standpoint. Um, certainly there's some great research on blood flow restriction training from everything from hormonal benefits to tissue specific adaptations for recovery and all that stuff. But I think what we need to be very, very careful of is, is who we use them in. So if you have an athlete who's got a history of nerve symptoms, you have an athlete that constantly complains of being tight, you know, neck symptoms, um, you know, triceps tendinopathy, a lot of that stuff. Those are the ones that for me are big red flags. Um, I can think of one particular example of an athlete who had what we would call a, a subluxating ulnar nerve. So he had a, a nerve that moved back and forth over his medial epicondyle as he went from flexion to extension while throwing. And he actually came in to see uh, my business partner, Shane and I, Shane's an amazing manual therapist. And when we actually kind of took a step back, we asked him, you know, hey, when does this bother you the most? I noticed it the most when I throw my curveball. And what we, we kind of really did was, we, you know, Shane, from a soft tissue point standpoint, really flossed it out. So, like, figured out all the areas of, of compression that he could have. So he treated, you know, scalings. He treated subclavius. He treated subscat, pec minor, all those. And then what we did was we actually dug a little bit deeper to ask him what his training was like. And one of the things that he commented on was that he was using the Versa Climber in blood flow uh, restriction cuffs um, after every start. So he was basically a guy who was compressing a nerve that was already kind of cranky because it was subluxating back and forth over that needle up a condo. So, you know, obviously he's taking away that was a, was a good move and it helped to settle the symptoms down in conjunction with the manual therapy and, you know, he did some nerve flossing as a follow-up, but we also noticed a lot of scapular control issues with him. So, you know, he kind of layered maybe, you know, incorrect training practices for him on top of some biomechanical compensations from, from faulty movement patterns and all that. So you really have to look at it very holistically. Some people can be a great candidate for this. And certainly in the general population, you know, BFR has a lot of merit. Um, so there's, you know, probably fewer concerns there, but I would tell you when we, you know, looking at the lower extremity versus the upper extremity, by all means, throw blood pressure cuffs on like thighs and, you know, blast your quads as much as you want. You know, we've seen some amazing stuff with ACL patients who need to get back some, you know, some uh, quad girth after they've, Know, gone through surgery and are a little bit limited there, but you just got to be really, really cautious in throwing shoulders because 
they go through really, really dangerous situations and an unnatural act every time they play baseball. So we just need to be cognitive of not exacerbating things. No, yeah, that's a crazy story, actually, about the one client you've had down in Florida. I think, yeah, it's another one of those examples of it, it depends. Just yeah. like it keeps coming up. But Yeah, and what I would say, too, is if you're going to use it, you know, by all means, use it. Start with like a lower pressure, right? Don't aggressively mm. compress. Obviously, follow the guidelines for, for how uh, much compression you should get as you work through there. But also integrate it gradually, right? Maybe it's once a week, once between starts or something like that if you are going to utilize it. But be very careful about aggressive wraps um, and be very careful in particular about doing it in areas where nerves are exposed. So probably not a great idea to wrap directly around your elbow because we, we yeah. both know anyone who's ever whacked their funny bone knows your ulnar nerve is really, really exposed. It's right there. Um, I, I, yeah, I personally, I have ulnar nerves that subluxate on both sides. So they'll they'll pop around and, you know, it's kind of like a cool party trick. But I also know that I'm more susceptible to, you know, basically ulnar neuritis. So for me, that means be careful about how many heavy chin up. I do. And, you know, whenever I get really, really aggressive with throwing with our guys and, you know, think I'm a rock star and I can long toss with the pro guys, <laughs> a week, you know, invariably I do get a little bit flared up. No, most definitely. Yeah. No one should definitely be putting on the blood flow restriction cuffs and long tossing. That's for sure. That's yeah. the one thing we, we could for sure say from this. <laughs> leave it out. Leave it out. <laughs> All right. Our last one is actually pretty close to my heart just because I've, I've dropped a little sidearm lately. Um, I like in it. my own pitching, but Third picture, or third question is, what does a submariner have to do differently in workouts and training? You know, it's a great question because I think the assumption is um, that we're talking about arm action, right? Um, and so, yes, they face a lot of the same perils. But if you actually slow things down and examine joint angles, you'll see that shoulder and elbow positioning for most of these guys, particularly the submarine guys, is very similar to what you see in true overhead throwers, guys at three-quarter slots. But what the difference is how much lateral trunk tilt they have. Um, so obviously, the more trunk tilt you have, the lower the release point. And I actually I put it on an example up on my uh, my Instagram. I don't know, probably a couple months ago, right at the start of the mm -hmm. offseason. It actually, it compared Oliver Drake and Adam Simber. So Adam Simber is the ultra submarine guy. He has the lowest uh, vertical release height in all of baseball. Um, and then I actually put it side by side with uh, Oliver Drake, who's one of our guys. So Oliver has a ton of lateral trunk tilt away from his arm side. So as a right-handed pitcher, what's interesting about Oliver is I believe he throws like an 1155 uh, axis, uh, spin axis four seam. So that's yeah, like he's a lefty. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> traditionally right-handed pitchers will throw a, a, you know, basically a four seam between a 12 and a one and a lefty will throw up between an 11 and a 12. So Oliver is actually so trunk tilted away from his arm side that he throws from basically a left-handed slot. What's interesting though, is if you put Oliver and Adam and you, you tinker with the pitchers and line them up, um, Adam has much more of a conventional arm slot. You know, he throws from almost like a true three quarters, whereas Oliver has a lower arm slot and a, a, you know, substantially higher vertical release angle. So the thing I would tell you is in this discussion of side marine, or sorry, sidearm submarine guys, really what you have to do is you have to first take away all trunk tilt and look what's really, really happening from an arm action standpoint, right? So a guy who throws from a very high slot is going to need more scapular upward rotation. He's going to need more lat length to get to that position. A guy who throws from a, a lower slot is probably going to be able to get away with a little bit less of a mobile shoulder. Um, so he has a little bit more wiggle room to work with. With that said, there is a little bit of research. There's actually a study um, that uh, came out in 2009 in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. The lead author was Aguinaldo, and the, the article was titled Correlation of Throwing Mechanics with Elbow Valgus Load in Adult Baseball Pitchers. 
And in this study, they actually had a, a pretty good sample size. It was like 69 adult baseball players, um, and 14 pitchers were a sidearm action. And they did show that a sidearm action, so that's, a, again, a, that's a lower slot, not just lateral trunk tilt. They showed that there were higher elbow valgus torques than we saw when the overarm huh. uh, slot position. So, which isn't altogether surprising, right? When we consider yeah. what we know about, like, you know, if the elbow is, is inside 90 degrees, um, as we lay our arm back, there generally tends to be less valgus stress. So that if you're in a sidearm position, you're not going to be anywhere near that point. So you probably are throwing the, the UCL in a little bit more of a dangerous position. The trade-off though is remember that guys that throw from those slots usually throw with lower velocities. So you're, you're reducing the force aspect of things to some degree. Um, so, you know, it's probably a give and a take, but, you know, generally speaking, a, a true sidearm delivery will be a little bit less elbow friendly. Um, but when it comes to actually modifying things for their training, I think the bigger question is how do you manage true like submarine guys from a core control standpoint um just because they're going to have a lot more lateral trunk tilt so they're going to need more time on core stability um working to iron out excessive uh, right left asymmetries that arise secondary to all that lateral trunk tilt um so in other words i think you, you have to worry about the spine as much as you do around the arm um as you know a really gross generalization for this scenario no, almost. I mean, I think even it's interesting to see how the hips work on guys that actually have to drop down too. As much trunk tilt as they have, the timing of like them getting into like back like hip extensions just a little bit different too, and and how they actually use their lower half to create momentum down the slope. And we talk a lot about it. Yeah, I mean, you think about right-handed pitchers, right? If if you're a guy who who tends to drift dramatically towards the third base dugout, the direction in your delivery is not going to be great. So as a submariner, the natural tendency is because your center of mass is projecting towards third base to create that. It becomes very hard to create a true hip load that gives you the correct direction of the plate. So you get a lot of momentum that tends to drift you towards basically the, the third base batter's box as a right-handed submarine pitcher. And what that really does, it makes it very hard to get into your front hip. Um, because you effectively have to reorient yourself. So those guys, you know, they need to have unreal, you know, basically hip mobility into their lead hip. Um, they've got to have a glove side that's really well timed up to get them back on time. Um, you know, certainly they're, they're sacrificing velocity for some deception and, you know, some, some funky movement and all that side of things. But that direction from the back hip can't be overstated. Now, when you, when you drop down, would you consider yourself a true sidearm or would you consider yourself a, a slightly lower traditional slot? I would say that I, I, I've, I've fully embraced the sidearm, the <laughs> sidearm where I am. Cause I was tinkering on low three quarters, but. I'm there now. I'm, I'm sidearm. <laughs> I'm, I'm embracing the trunk tilt and watching Steve Ciszek late at night trying to did, learn. So, <laughs> did you just like officially confess to being a crafty lefty in front of thousands of people? I did. Honestly, it was. It took Quinn Cleary had to make fun of me enough times in the birdcage being a sidearmer for me to finally embrace the fact that I, I am a crafty lefty who throws sidearm. He doesn't throw ninety five. So <laughs> you just got a thousand times more quirky, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in my eyes. But I respect <laughs> the hustle. What, what did you notice as you made that adjustment because you know I've, I've heard stories about like um all kinds of different things just seeing starters uh, sorry relievers go to become starters um was it a different level of soreness for you in different positions as you got going towards it yeah i was gonna say it really started when i had elbow surgery two years ago just coming back i was super over the top and trying to be safe mechanically and and i remember one day uh, kyle was just like hey man like why don't you just try like getting your hand away from your head and it just, yeah, it just felt better. I, I felt like the ball was coming out of my hand better. And, 
and it was when we looked at, at the radar gun and stuff like that. So it was, it was, I say a combination of just how things felt and then how I felt after throwing that just made me really want to, want to do it. And it just, it makes more sense with how my body moves and how I'm able to actually use the rest of my body throwing. I can't do the whole like lean away from my body like Drake and throw over the top. So I might as well use what I can and, and be a side, uh, a sidearm slinger. So. And I think there's, there's definitely a smaller margin for error with those guys. I know Steve, you know, his podcast, uh, I think it was like the third one or second one. I can't remember. Um, he talked very openly about like, you know, it's a, it's a game of absolute millimeters with his slider because mm-hmm. you, you very quickly can get around the baseball instead of being through the baseball if you're not careful from the, that lower slot. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's one of the reasons sidearmers I feel like are like knuckleballers. They have to stick together because the movement <laughs> is, is unique and there's so many yeah. places where it can effectively go wrong. Yeah. So even as much as there is like a, a bigger room for error, I do feel like, it gave me a like an actual identity too as a pitcher. I know when I was kind of three quarters, I was a like a slurve, bad changeup guy, and and now I can actually like I feel like I can throw a slider and and have a confident second and and third pitch and a changeup just from that arm slot. I think that makes a big difference for for guys to end up dropping down. Maybe they're just more consistent and can actually be deceptive with a with like a sinker slider like like Cshek is. Where like before that, they were almost like trying to find who they were and were like effectively just average at like maybe one or two things. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome, man. And we got to do it again. This is a lot of fun. We, we actually have some more, more questions in the well that we'll have to use for, for a future podcast, but no, most definitely um, we'll have to yeah. mix in a couple of these. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you're, awesome. you're a stud Dakota. Appreciate you taking the time. Folks, if you're interested in, in learning more about uh, the summer development program, again, drop us an email at cspmass at gmail.com. Um, I also posted a blog post on my website on, uh, on January 12th when we announced it, so you can check that one out as well. And uh, we'll look forward to doing this again soon. Thanks, Dakota. Yep, no worries. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, We'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.